so a couple things I did want to just, I feel obligated to, to mention my bibliography. So this is, all this uh, that I have, Let God Be True, a book Bob gave me years ago, and it is an old book. I believe it was published, and it is a Watchtower uh, book, and I believe it was published in the 50s or so, uh, but it's a, a very good summary, and most everything that was in this yeah, 1952 was the printing of this, and it hasn't really changed a lot since 1952. Just a couple of minor things we'll even see this evening have changed since then. Um, this book, Greg still loaned me, and it's a, a good book. It's by David Reed, uh, who is a former third-generation Jehovah's Witness. And uh, so this is a book that's Jehovah's Witnesses answers, answered verse by verse, and it is basically... Because he's done it, he knows uh, what they do when you agree to study with him. He knows the guided tour they're going to take you on on the Bible as, you know, as the, the, and it's not the exact same every time, but he does know, you know, where their main, uh, their main text that they'll go to, and he just goes and discusses every one of these, and um, it's a very, very good read, as well as a couple things he, uh, I believe he studied his way out of this into the Baptist church, I believe, though he doesn't mention specifically in the book. But I did read a couple of articles by David Reed as well. Um, I read those articles on the Internet, just here and there, things that, that he put up on a website. And this is the trusty New World Translation um, by the Watchtower Society. And this is actually, again, a gift from Bob. Uh, and this one is the 1961 printing, and it has changed just a little bit since 1961 even. Uh, one, one, uh, the one change I found in it is uh, uh, Hebrews 1 and verse 6. Um, you know, I mentioned last night that Hebrews 1 and verse 6, we were studying about the deity of Christ, and this is kind of worth looking at. So, and this is... This is an older version, but it has been changed in the newer versions of the New World Translation. And you'll remember one of their fundamental uh, doctrines is that of, uh, of Christ is not divine. And one of the things they've done in the New World Translation is every time that the word proskuneu, I believe that's right, refers to, or the object of that word is God, the Greek word uh, proskuneu, every time the object is God, it's worship. But every time the object is Jesus, they change it to obeisance. So Hebrews 1.6, here they translate it in this, um, uh, in this one, let, and let all God's angels worship him. In the newer versions, uh, the, it says give obeisance to him. So again, they're, they're changing of the word worship. Listen, I guess that verse slipped through the cracks because I did a, a number of, I looked up the others as well and, and found that they rendered obeisance as the word when Jesus was the object of worship, because if you know if he approves of being worshipped, then you know that disproves the fact that he's deity, because the angels would not allow mortals to worship them, uh, though mortals would try. And Jesus, you know, never denied that when 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 men would worship him, he he allowed that to happen. <clears throat> so, a couple of just notes there. So. Just take a quick review of what we covered last night. So last night we covered an overview of the basic teachings. Tonight we're, we're going to finish up this lesson uh, on the, the overview of the basic teachings. Um, it, last night we covered a lot of it, but we put off premillennialism. They are very premillennial in their thinking. So tonight's lesson will be a little bit technical because there's no way to study premillennialism without getting a little bit technical. Uh, so we'll have to do that. Um, but then after that, we'll get into the significance of 1914. Hopefully I'll, I'll get into that, which is a separate lesson this evening. Um, just kind of go through the slides to, just to get everybody's mind back on the Jehovah's Witnesses from, I suppose it would be from the Mormons just a, a little while ago, right? So it was shift gears for a moment. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses are very zealous, they are very committed, they're very prepared. Those are the things you need to be aware of when they come to your door. They have made a significant commitment in their lives to do what they're doing. And the general rank and file are very sincere. 
It's what we covered last night. The Watchtower Society, remember their teaching is that it's God's only visible organization. Uh, it was approved of God, ordained by God in 1919. And um, it is the anointed. That word, the anointed, is referring to the 144,000 that are referenced in Revelation 7, I believe, is where that reference is. And um, so it's referring to that. And not that the, the Watchtower is the only anointed, but there have been members of that 144,000 through time. And, you know, there, there were these members who were around at that time. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about that number and what it means to their theology this evening. Man is incapable of understanding the scripture without the Watchtower's help. They actively persuade their members to read the Watchtower publications, not the Bible. Uh, it's not that they say don't read the Bible, but that the, bio, the Watchtower Society writings are more important than reading the Bible. And that's, that's certainly something they would teach. And they claim Matthew 24 refers to the Watchtower Society. So anytime you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, you'll hear uh, in reference to the Watchtower Society, the discreet and faithful say, slave, or the faithful and discreet slave. They'll use that a lot, quoting from Matthew 24. Anyone remember what Matthew 24 was about? When the Lord came. That's right. So he put the slave over the house, right? And when the Lord came back, he was faithful. He found him faithful, and he rewarded him. That's the simple point of the parable, right? It's not teaching that, that uh, when Jesus came back, he found one faithful and discreet slave being the Watchtower Society. And remember, their position on that has changed. Originally, it was Charles Page Russell was the faithful and discreet servant. Then, it was Joseph Rutherford. And now, it's the Watchtower Society. Yeah, it's the society that was, that was there at that time. is the faithful and discreet slave. Um, Here's their circular reasoning, and, and it could be represented in different ways, certainly, but this is basically it. God chose the Watchtower Society. How do you know? Because they were teaching the truth when the Lord came back and, and, uh, and tested them and tried them and purified them. Uh, what about the changes that have taken place in Watchtower publications since then? Well, that's just new light, and that is their term, new light. They'll use that term to refer to, to any change that may have happened. Well, God revealed new light to the Watchtower Society. Uh, could that be true of other religions? Since, you know, this new light has been shed, could that be true of other religions that they've received new light and now are closer to the truth? No, that can't be true because God chose the Watchtower Society, and they're the ones who have the truth that they get from God. And so it goes in a circle uh, over and over. Um, so breaking that circle is a difficult thing to do. Their teachings on the nature of God. Jesus is not deity. He's the first of God's creation. They also teach that he's Michael, the, archa the archangel. Um, they change the word worship to obeisance. We covered that already. Um, and that's the Greek word or a transliteration of the Greek word. And you can see that all the other times they render it worship, there's just a a handful of times when Jesus is not the object that they'll render it obeisance in their New World Translation. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not a person. Okay? Um, that's their teaching on it. Rather, it's God's active force. We looked at some of their proof texts, and then we looked at some passages. And I think the most powerful was Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, where that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. You don't lie to a force, right? They lied to a person. And then the next verse, verse 4, Peter tells them, you haven't lied to men, but unto God. So verse 3 says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says you've lied to God. So it shows, A, that the Holy Spirit is, is a person, a personal being, and B, that the Holy Spirit is God. Those, they're used interchangeably there. Then, obviously, the logical conclusion is that the God, God is not a, a trinity Godhead. There's not the, this triune Godhead, and that's a logical conclusion. If Jesus isn't divine, the Holy Spirit isn't divine, or isn't uh, deity, and the Holy Spirit isn't deity, then, you know, there's only one left, right, uh, that Scripture mentions. And again, you know, their main argument on that is it's not so much that they have proof text, uh, but their main argument would be 
The idea of, of three and one is confusing. God's not the author of confusion, therefore it's not true. That's their reasoning. But we saw the, the passages there that, that clearly show uh, Matthew 3 is the reference to Jesus' baptism, uh, and then Matthew 28 and verse 19, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then in the Old Testament, let us make man in our own image. This is one that I, I don't have a lesson for yet. I hope I can develop it between now and Thursday. Um, but this is the gist of their teaching on the nature of man, but I really wanted to cover this with you. If not, by third, maybe by Friday, um, I can get this done. If not, I just give you my apologies in advance, but I will try. Um, but their concept is the spirit has no existence apart from the body. The soul is body plus spirit equals soul. So when the body dies, the soul also dies because the definition of soul is body plus spirit. The body's dead. There is no. The soul has to be dead. Okay. That's uh, their teaching on hell is that it's not an eternal torment. It is rather just non-existence, destruction. You're destroyed when you're cast into hell. Um, the same is true, will be true of Satan at the end of time when he's cast into hell. It'll just be, he no longer exists. He's non-existent anymore. The, the uh, seven the position on the nature of man is very similar. Okay. Good. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. And again, we look at proof text uh, along that, um, you know, Ecclesiastes. We mentioned how that, that there's, <laughs> just shows how that they don't really care about context in, in setting forth that doctrine. I mean, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 3 through 10, no knowledge in the grave where you are going, right? Well, you know, it's not saying at all that when you die, you, you cease to exist. Um, and, you know, some passages that they should read, First uh, Samuel 28 is the mention of Samuel being raised, if you will, by the witch at Endor, and you know. But the the point is not not, and I hope I made this clear last night. I was not endorsing the witch or the spiritist or anything like that at all. But the point being made is Samuel's spirit clearly did not die when Samuel's body died. Samuel was still alive because that was Samuel. Either that or the the Bible is not true. Because it uses the name Samuel to refer to him. He spoke, he spoke to the witch as well as to Saul. He spoke and delivered God's word, uh, to Saul. So, and then Luke 16 is rich man Lazarus in Hades and, and, you know, and on. And then the interesting story about Dorcas and just the language in that story in Acts chapter 9. Miscellaneous peculiar doctrine. I offered Pat my feeble attempt at humor. And that it's ironic that I'm, I just left a birthday celebration to come here to teach a class on the Jehovah's Witnesses who, who even sinful to, uh, to celebrate birthdays and holidays. So again, I won't try that again. I'm not, not a comedian, but that was a feeble attempt. Again, they do not believe in blood transfusions based primarily on Acts 15. And the prohibitions from eating blood in the law and, and the, you know, the instructions on how to bleed the animal, um, so that you don't eat blood. And they carry that on to no blood transfusion. I don't think I made this point last night, but it is certainly worth mentioning. No other religion that I am aware of has, shares this doctrine. I'm, I don't know of anyone else who has taken Acts 15 and, and the passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy to mean that you cannot accept a blood transfusion. I, I'm not aware of anyone who, who teaches that. And, that's, and that is one that they are incredibly passionate about. Um, very, very passionate in terms of, uh, you know, some of the stories I read. Uh, and, and these weren't, you know, these weren't made up fanciful stories. They were, you know, reliable news media outlets. Uh, and, and articles from those supporting this, but they will they would go to the extreme of kidnapping a baby from a hospital to prevent that baby from getting a blood transfusion. If the law, if a judge stepped in and said the baby's going to die, you must give it blood. You know they would go to the extreme of kidnapping that baby 
uh, and breaking the law that way. And you know, th- th- it's it, receiving a blood transfusion is a more serious sin to them than theft or adultery. It's um, you know, I don't know of anywhere where they specifically say that, but in their behavior, it is that way. You will be disfellowshipped uh, basically instantly for accepting a, a blood transfusion. Uh, the triviality about the torture stake, there was no cross beam. It was just an upright pole that Jesus died on um, and don't really have much to base that on other than that's what the Watchtower says. Uh, salvation based on works, though they wouldn't say it that way, that is indeed what they believe and Bob's points were definitely appropriate about how that they, they have no idea what forgiveness is and, and that's a concept that's really fuzzy to them, forgiveness of the guilt of sin. Um, no civic activity and college education is discouraged among their members because it causes you to lose faith, faith and the time you spend getting a college education would be better spent in, in the work. <laughs> that's a review. That's what we covered last time. So let's look at premillennialism and their own brand of premillennialism. And they have their own brand, which is different from mainstream. And so now we're back on the, the handout. So on the first page, at the bottom of the first page, is where we're really picking up if you wanted to follow along uh, on the handout. So have you guys studied premillennialism much at all? A little bit? Okay. Um, most every denomination out there teaches some form of premillennialism. Almost everyone that I know of the Baptists do, though not all Baptists, um, but most Baptists teach premillennialism. Your charismatic denominations teach premillennialism. Uh, most, I mean, the Sabbath, the Sabbatarians are clearly premillennial. Um, so it's a, the prevalent doctrine, even among um, even among some brethren, it has been a problem in, in, in the past. I don't know of any churches now who would hold any of the tenets of premillennialism, though there may be some that exist. Uh, the, the idea of premillennialism, pre means before, millennium means thousand years. So the concept is something's going to be before the 1,000 year reign of Christ. That's the 1,000 year reign that we read about in Revelation 20 is that what that 1,000 years is in reference to. Um, so a premillennialist is someone who believes the second coming of Christ will be before this 1,000-year reign. Okay? Uh, the 1,000-year kingdom is earthly. That is something that is very... that, that every premillennialist group I know of teaches that, that the 1,000-year kingdom is on earth. It's not a heavenly kingdom. Uh, they attempt... To, to apply Revelation and a number of other prophecies to current events. Uh, every premillennialist I know will do that. Um, and they have this really difficult time resisting the temptation to predict the exact date of the end of the world. I don't know a premillennialist that... I mean, some have learned their lesson, but most have at least learned their lesson the hard way. Most uh, premillennialists have. Those are some things that they all share in common. But I wouldn't want to leave you with the impression that um, Jehovah's Witness or Watchtower premillennialism is the same as mainstream premillennialism because they're not. They're, they're very different. Uh, they do share all these things in common. Second coming is before the thousand-year reign. The 1,000-year kingdom is earthly. The attempt to apply revelation and other prophecies to current events and this you know, setting of end-time dates, they have that all in common. But this is... Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. I think, so the, the standard is not actually pretty long, pretty long, pretty long. We have literal 1,000 years. Yes. Where they probably think that 1,000 years is being born forever. No, they actually believe it's a literal 1,000 years. Uh, yes, according to but, 1950s doctrine. Does the kingdom keep on on earth? There's a new heaven and new earth. So the new heaven and new earth comes in at the end of the 1,000 years. But the earth remains. And that's a very good question. A cleansed earth. A cleansed earth remains, yes. After the 1,000 years is over. Mm-hmm. Very good question. Very good question. Now I have a chart coming up that I believe will show that. Uh, the next chart um, will show you know, their timeline for that and when the 1,000 years begins and ends. Yes. But yeah, that's a very good question. And you're correct. 
that, and this is really mainstream premillennialism. So go ahead, Dan. How far back is this idea of premillennialism going? Now that is a good question. This is 1950, and I wasn't aware of the back that far. Oh, um, 1950 is when it was in the Jehovah's Witnesses. So premillennialism, the Miller, the the Millerites, which is where you know Charles Page Russell came from after the Great Disappointment of 1874. Okay, so there was a lot of disillusionment. So premillennialism existed even then, though maybe not in this exact form. Um, but uh, wow, I, I really wouldn't know when the first to teach some form of this mainstream premillennialism. I'm not sure when that would have begun. Uh, where's Bob when I need him? Uh, we have our president that related premillennialism back in the 30s. Yes. Yes. Um, Jehovah's Witness is this one. Okay, Watchtower. So this is mainstream. So your average Pentecostal, your average Baptist is going to believe pretty much exactly what you see on the screen. And I'll go through and describe that. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure which came first, to be honest with you. I'm not sure which came first. But I do know that you will see this idea lots more often than you will see the, the other ideas, the, the Sabbatarian view, which I'm sure is different. I don't know exactly how different it is, but it would be a little different from this, as well as the Jehovah's Witness. And I'll go through the differences. But most of the time, and I, and I even bring up mainstream versus watchtower, because you're going to hear both of them, and you'll see some things that are in common. So I think it's important to understand you know, where the differences lie, and you'll, you'll run into some, you'll hear some things that sound really familiar from the Jehovah's Witnesses that sound familiar to things you've heard from your average uh, Pentecostal, you know, Church of God. Um, I, I'm really having a hard time thinking of a denomination that does not teach this. Um, and I mean, Catholics probably do not teach this. Yeah, so it would be a little different. And, and you're right, you're, um, you're really staunch, primitive Baptists would probably not teach this because they would be very steeped in Calvinism and Calvinism is completely incompatible with this. Even though, even though Baptists, you know, the mainstream Baptists, Southern Baptists are going to borrow from both Calvinism and premillennialism. But I, I would say that pure Calvinism is completely incompatible with this. Yeah, because the main thing here is what, one of the fundamental tenets of premillennialism is that um, the, the cross was unforeseen, that Jesus came to the earth to set up his kingdom the first time, and he failed to do so. And as a result, everything's predetermined, yes. So in a pure Calvinist, you know, who accepts the sovereignty of God, as I'm sure Bobby's covered with you, um, the, you know, the strict God foreordained every single event. That's just not, you know, the, the church was kind of an emergency stopgap measure. Wait, they rejected him, what are we going to do now? Is kind of a, the, the approach that God, the Father and the Son had uh, at that time. So that's a, a mainstream premillennialism has that. At, at most premillennialists, though, don't really know that that's a consequence of their doctrine. That that's a, you know, that that's really at the heart of their doctrine is the belief that Jesus failed. That's most don't get that. So when you're dealing with a mainstream, a Baptist, or uh, on this topic, I, I think that's one key point to go to is that you realize that that logically, according to your doctrine, Jesus failed. And that's that's why you know, and that. You know, yeah, this is Plan B. Yeah, the church, Plan B. It's Plan B. Yeah, it's a stopgap measure. Yeah, unprophesied. And that is definitely they would say the church is unprophesied. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if it was unforeseen, right? How could you prophesy? So, yeah. The strict yeah, that was the purpose for his coming, was to set up his kingdom. Mm-hmm. So all this is that you said, 
Yeah, and, and the, the obvious question, you're leading right to the obvious question, Why? what's going to keep him from failing the second time? If he fails the first time, what, did he learn his lesson? I, mean, I don't mean to be irreverent in that, but do you see the, the consequence of that? Yes, the, yeah, that position is irreverent. Yes, yes, yes. Agreed. Totally, totally agreed on that. Yeah. So here's mainstream premillennialism, the cross unforeseen, um, and as a, an emergency because he was rejected and crucified, uh, we set up the, the, um, the church, and the church is going to continue indefinitely. Okay? We don't know exactly how long, but it's going to end soon. That would be, they would all say that, it's going to end soon. Now when the church age ends, it's going to end as a result of an event called the rapture. And you've heard the rapture, probably even seen a bumper sticker, in case of rapture, this car will be a man, or something like that. And their belief is that, that the bodies of the dead believers uh, of all time will be resurrected and carried up into heaven to be with Christ. And then after that event, based on 1 Thessalonians 4, and then after that event, the, the ones who are alive, the believers who are alive, will be snatched away as well. And it'll be as though you're, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting next to someone, and if the rapture happens, if you're not a believer and they are, they're gone and you're left. You know? And that's, you've probably heard of that popular um, series of books called the Left Behind series. And that's the idea there is... It's a you know religious fiction about those who didn't make the cut of the rapture. They didn't believe, and then the rapture happened, and they were left behind. Uh, so that's the event called the rapture. Now, one interesting fact about the rapture, the word rapture, never found in the Bible. Never. And the concept really isn't either. The closest that you can come to it would be 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, the idea that we'll be carried away to meet the Lord in the air, those who are living at his return. The rapture means taken away. Yeah, and, and the root is actually raptor, like a, an eagle or a hawk, and so that's, that's how they, they snatch their prey away, and that's, that's really where rapture comes from. And you'll hear us talk about, you know, enraptured joy, and the idea is we're carried away with joy. So I don't think it's wrong to use the word in that sense. Even one of our songs, you know, talks about rapture in that sense, and it's, you know, nothing, it's, a, it's an English word that has that meaning, but yes. So the rapture will come and snatch away the living believers after the resurrected believers are taken into heaven. That, when you don't have any Christians on the earth, things are going to get really bad, really bad. So you got the tribulation. That'll be seven years of tribulation. Right in the middle of that tribulation, there's going to be this charismatic leader who comes up called the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to lead multiple people after him. Now, some people are going to realize the error of their way during this tribulation and realize, you know, I'm missing my buddy. He was right all along, you know, and uh, and, and they're going to be converted. Um, and But at the end of the tribulation, the end of the seventh year, There'll be a great battle, the scale of which has never been seen, the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, that battle will, will be raging on. To end that battle, Jesus will come back the second time, and he will literally come back to the Mount of Olives, and when he comes back, it will be split in two at that time. That will end the Battle of Armageddon. Um, after that battle's over, he will set up his 1,000-year reign on earth, which will be 1,000 years of of peace and, you know, the, the lion lying with the lamb, all of that, you know, that's going to be in the 1,000-year kingdom. Um, and um, when the 1,000 years is over, during that entire time, Satan will be bound. Near the end, Satan will be loosed. And at the end of that 1,000 years, uh, there will be a great white throne judgment that you read about in Revelation 20 as well. And the bodies of the unbelievers who died before will be resurrected at that time. Uh, and there will be a judgment where that you have any believers who would have died in this time would also be raised, and, and there will be that judgment of the righteous. So that's mainstream for everyone else. Not what we're here to study, but I did want to kind of show that to you so you can you know, get, get a, an idea of that. 
Now the Watchtower has their own little take on it, which is even more complex. So like I said, it'll get a little technical this evening. So this is Watchtower premillennialism. So you had the cross. I'm not really sure what they say about the, the, you know, the prophecies of the cross. I haven't really looked into that a whole lot. Um, but what happened is that in 1914, uh, Jesus had that invisible parousia. Remember, parousia doesn't mean coming in the New World Translation. Pretty much every other translation, that's what it means, but not in the New World Translation. It means, do you remember the word? Presence. Good, good. You, yeah, you guys are all over this. Great. So it means presence. So Jesus' presence uh, was... He came, his presence was there in 1914. Now what they teach happened is that the dead anointed were spiritually raised in, uh, in 1918. When he came in 1914, that unleashed a war in heaven. That's the war we read about in Revelation 12. You might be familiar with that, where that, you know, Satan has been cast out of heaven and goes and, and wreaks havoc on the earth, right, and, and persecutes the woman, the woman, uh, the child of the woman, you remember that? So that's Revelation 12. There was this, that all happened in heaven. Uh, uh, just a huge war in heaven. Uh, or, I'm sorry, that happened in 1914. Satan is now waging that war in, uh, on earth. Um, so once he cleansed heaven and kicked Satan and his demons out of heaven, then uh, he cleansed the earth. His temple on earth, his spiritual temple on earth, which is those anointed that we talked about. And he found them, when he tested them, he found them to be true, um, that being the Watchtower Society, right? So those anointed ones, he found them to be true. Um, and now he rules in his kingdom in heaven with the anointed. Okay? He's been doing that, ruling with them since 1918. So what, what about this rapture? like event here, 1 Thessalonians 4. So they teach that the dead anointed, in other words, anyone who was of that 144,000 who had died before this 1914, or actually 1918, uh, were raised spiritually. Okay? They were raised spiritually in 1918 to go and reign with Christ. Well, what about with the 1 Thessalonians 4? And let's look there, because that's probably worth uh, looking at. I, I'll catch myself doing this sometimes. I'll refer to a passage as though everybody has read it yesterday just like I did. You know? And that's not always true, is it? <laughs> so in First Thessalonians 4, um, in beginning in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, I've always understood 1 Thessalonians 14 to be talking about Jesus' second coming. Not a rapture, a fake second coming, an invisible coming, an almost coming. It's the end. That's what he's talking about. And at the end... The dead who are in Christ, who are believers, will be bodily raised from the grave and will go and meet Christ in the air. That's how I understand 1 Thessalonians to teach. And then those who are alive at his coming, they will likewise then be caught up to, to go into heaven and you know the world is over at that time. And there, there are other passages that give us more events, or more details about what's going to happen. Um, but notice... Um, what they, what they say is that they were raised, okay? Um, the dead were raised, and they were spiritually raised. And that is key to Jehovah's Witness. They do not teach, a, in general, a bodily resurrection except for what we're going to talk about in a moment. But in general, there is not this bodily resurrection. Um, Jesus was not 
bodily raised. Okay? That's not, they do not teach that. Jesus was not bodily raised, only his spirit was raised. Okay? So he was raised spiritually. Um, not sure how they deal with, you know, placing your finger, you know. Uh, no, I guess not. I, I really don't know how they deal with that passage at all. Uh, I, I really don't. I didn't didn't get to that. I, um, forgive me for not knowing that. But yeah, they they do not teach that that Jesus was raised bodily. Now, if you catch the end there of the dead anointed spiritually raised, or immediately, okay, the dead anointed. What I'm getting at there. What about the dead anointed, or the anointed, the dead anointed were raised in 1918. What about the anointed who die after 1918? They're going to be immediately resurrected. Okay? In, in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, they're going to be immediately resurrected to be with Christ in heaven. Uh, among, as soon as they die. As soon as they die. Yes, exactly. It's, you say anointed Yes. Does that mean all the Just 144,000? Just 144,000. That's right. And how do you know if you're in the 144,000 or not? You don't. You don't really know. There's no way to for sure know whether you're in that 144,000 or not. That's between you and Jehovah, as they would say. Uh, there will be exactly 144,000, so I don't know, I mean... Here's the way to travel. They have the Lord's Supper once a year. And only 144,000 will take the Lord's Supper. That's correct. If I understand correctly, all the groups around the world present today take the Lord's Supper. That same day, once a year, not a single person currently takes the bread and through the Even though they take the bread and not a single person. Wow. Nobody knew the exact part of the forty four thousand. You can claim to be, you know. Yeah. Nobody I think that's nobody ever Yes. 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 Yes, they did. They did. They they do keep records of that. So they have kept records of, of uh, who took communion. So yes. No, no. That's right. That's right. Well, but they, but they would believe that someone could have thought they were and were really not. Okay. Yeah. So that they, you know, they, and. Yeah. Exactly. 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 So yeah, it, yeah, it, the, because they've had, I'm sure, over 144,000 by now who have protected. Yeah. 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 On the surf. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is generally true. There's no chance. I mean, when you, yeah, I mean, yeah, your chances of being that 144,000 are much less than winning the lottery. I mean, when you think of just the numbers game. Billions and billions and billions of people who have ever lived on the earth, 144,000 are going to be in heaven. Yeah. So, yeah, so, but if you happen to be in that 144,000, you'll be raised immediately upon your death. So that's what I mean by they were either raised in 1918 or immediately, whichever comes first. Okay. So 1918 comes first or immediately upon your death. You're right. So, so if you were alive in 1918, you would be raised. But, if you weren't alive in 1918, then you know you'll be immediately raised upon your death. So then there, um, then there will be tribulation on earth. They would say that's what we're experiencing now. Um, there is tribulation. Satan is, uh, you know, persecuting, and and it's, you know, it's getting worse and worse. Um, and you have nation against nation and so forth going on right now. Yes, they they say that uh, the times of the Gentiles. Now I have some slides on that. We'll get to, um, but the times of the Gentiles began or ended. I'm sorry, in 1914, and, and they've got an elaborate prophecy on that. Um, but yes, the idea is that. Um, uh, wow. 
totally lost my train of thought. About World War I. Yes, yes. So that marked a distinct change in history and how that, um, you know, how that the world operates. Because never before had you had a war of the scale of World War I. So that's never before that time. So that, that's how they know that these prophecies are accurate. Their interpretation of these prophecies are accurate. Yes. World War II was bad, but it wasn't as globally changing as World War One. Yeah. Um, so then you have the the Battle of Armageddon is going to mark the end of the world as we know it. Okay. That that will be this huge battle that's coming. Now only the only survivors of the Battle of Armageddon will be Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll be spared uh, in the Battle of Armageddon. Okay. Uh, everyone else on the earth will be wiped out completely. So your only hope, if you're alive when the Battle of Armageddon happens, is to be a Jehovah's Witness. It's your only hope for survival during that war. Uh, the final revelation of the king is what they call the, the second coming. Uh, that will be, again, at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. Um, the final revelation of the king. He will establish... Now, he won't come all the way back to earth then. Not at all. But he will establish his 1,000-year kingdom uh, on the earth at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, which ends with his final revealing of himself. Um, and the only people left will be whom? Jehovah's Witnesses. That's all that will be left on the earth after that Battle of Armageddon. Uh, so what will happen early, they don't know exactly when in the 1,000 years, but sometime during that 1,000 years, the dead righteous the ones who were righteous people, uh, who died before Christ came, who died before Armageddon, those dead, they will be bodily raised. Okay? They will be bodily raised to the earth uh, to live in this 1,000-year kingdom. Okay? Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses who are left after the Battle of Armageddon, they have two very, very big jobs. Uh, or really, more than that, but two that are, that are very important. One is to replenish the earth. Because, after all, most of the earth has been wiped out, right? So they have to multiply and replenish the earth. The other thing that they'll have to do is they're on this, you know, finding any, any uh, instrument of war and turning it into, you know, you, you know, uh, yeah, turning it into plowshares and pruning hooks, right? Yeah, so uh, that's, that's the job they have. But after the, the righteous are bodily raised, the unbelievers will be bodily raised as well. And so they have to be about the business of teaching those unbelievers who are raised during this 1,000 years. Now, the advantage they'll have is that, you know, there won't be sin on the earth during this time, right? Satan, Satan is bound uh, during this 1,000 years. So they'll have that advantage that when these dead unbelievers are risen, you know, they'll have the advantage of sin not already being on the earth when they come back. You know, so they'll have some advantages in teaching them, but they have the obligation to teach these unbelievers who have died. Um, now, they don't know exactly when, whether it's early or late, but it's at a different time than the raising of the, of the righteous uh, believers. Then at, one other thing that, that is worth pointing out is that not all unbelievers will be bodily raised. There are some people who were just so wicked, they don't get a second chance. Who were just uh, immediately, and I forget the term that I ran across that they use to refer to these, uh, to these types of people who just, they had, they, their deeds were wicked enough that, that they're, they're immediately in, not in hell, mind you, but they're immediately in this state of, of unconsciousness. Uh, they won't get this chance. Then at the end of the 1,000 years, Satan has been bound all this time. He will be loosed, and he'll have a brief amount of time to try to turn people after him, and he will succeed uh, in turning some people after him. And then the 1,000 years will end, and when that ends, Satan and his angels and all those whom he deceived towards the end of that 1,000 years will be cast into the lake of fire. In other words, they'll be forever non-existent and unconscious. They'll be destroyed. Uh, and that will usher in a new earth on which, you know, there's no sin ever, no chance of, of, of ever having sin, no Satan. So that's, 
Watch Power Premillennialism. I warned you it would be technical and, and complicated. And ingenious might be, you know, the other word for it. I mean, that takes some imagination to, to, uh, to formulate all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's correct. It took me a minute to catch up to you. Just looking over my notes here to see if I've uh, left anything out, and I think I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, there will be no more resurrection for, for those who are cast into the lake of fire. And I don't have a handout for what I'm about to cover. Um, just some slides, and I hope I remember my train of thought that I had when I developed these slides. What I will do for you is I'll just print out these slides. I, I just, before the time you guys leave, I just don't have time to do, you know, the words like that. So hopefully, I'll print what I have, and, and hopefully this will be uh, helpful for you. So shifting, wow, it's been an hour. Wow, wow. Um, so these, I have about, Dave, there's no way I can cover this. There's no way. So what I'll do, I've only got about eight or ten slides, so there's just no way I can cover this. Um, I was a little late getting started, so let me go through the review that sets the stage. Um, but th then I'll add some slides to this lesson that discussed the 144,000, and then we'll get into the theocratic war strategy, which to me is really among the most important because you need to be aware of, of how they will deal with you. Um, all right, so the significance of 1914. This, before we begin, we need the foundations class. Only one in here was in the foundations class besides me. So I'll ask some questions, but if you've read Bob's series of books, uh, just some key dates in the period of the captivity we need to, to think about. Um, so does anyone remember the key dates when the captivity began? You know, before the flood, floods, carrying the people, Patriarch, Texas, wandering wilderness, United Kingdom, divided kingdom, Judah alone, and then Judah was taken captive. Okay. So some key dates, the captivity lasted how long? Let me ask that question. Seventy years, right? We know that from Jeremiah's prophecy. Daniel 9 referred to Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 25. Okay. So that date was from 606 to 536. Okay. That's the dates of the captivity. Okay. Judah's captivity. Judah's captivity, yes. yes. Judah's captivity. Israel never came back. Israel never came back, that's right. Yeah, that's right. There's no end date on Israel's captivity. Yeah. So 606 to 536 is the 70 years of captivity. Daniel 9, Jeremiah 25 are the two places to read about that and learn that it was going to last 70 years. 606 is when it first began, when Nebuchadnezzar took the first group of captives. Okay? Daniel was taken with that first group of captives in 606 B.C. He was taken with that first group, Daniel within the king's palace. You remember the stories of him being in Nebuchadnezzar's palace with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, Ezekiel was taken in the second group of captives. So what was going on is this war between Babylon and Egypt, and Babylon was really trying to conquer Egypt, something they never did. And likewise, at the first captivity, um, you know, the, uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar had an emergency, and I forget the exact details of this. Oh, I'll have to read up on it. But he was there around Judah, and I believe he had uh, uh, some, someone, I want to say a brother, died back in Babylon. King died. So he had to go and make sure that, that his authority didn't get taken from him. So and when he did that, he took the captives with him. Ezekiel was taken along with a second group in 597 B.C. is when Ezekiel was taken. Ezekiel was among the common people, you'll remember. And then the date for, uh, for Judah's fall uh, is 586. Okay? Judah, or I'm sorry, Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell in 586. Zedekiah uh, was ruling in Jerusalem when that happened. And you'll remember Zedekiah was taken. They plucked his eyes out. You remember that story? 
And the reason I wrote 2 Kings 25, 1-10 there is because it's very specific about the dates in 2 Kings uh, 25 and in the year of the reign and uh, in, in this year of this reign is very specific on that. Um, so there is... I don't, I don't know of a single archaeologist who dates the fall of Jerusalem any other time than 586 or 587. One of those two years. It, there's no one else that dates it at any other time. Okay? No one else except the Watchtower. And we'll get to that. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, I'm sure they have a lot of expert archaeologists just like a lot of expert Greek translators. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a panel of experts. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, that's, so I just wanted to put that by way of review to emphasize Jerusalem fell in 586. Okay? That's when, you know, they, they seized it in, in really about 588 is when they seized it. It was under siege for, for about two years, and then, you know, eventually it fell, and, and uh, they burned it, burned it completely down. There was no more Jerusalem. It was completely burned um, in 586. So keep that date in mind. It'll come up, come in handy to disprove their because 1914 is so important to them. But even according to their prophecy, they get it wrong, and we'll see that. Thanks for your attention. Uh, tonight was very technical, and I and we didn't really realize scripture unlike last night. So uh, next time we'll we'll look at some of these verses. Second. Thank you. Hard work. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate your. Compliments and encouragement there. Uh, I'm thinking about tomorrow night. I don't know what Bob has in mind, but is he talking about? Yeah, I think I think I'm going to skip tomorrow night. So yeah, so we'll do Thursday and Friday. So I've got the this topic of 1914, and then um, uh, and then we'll cover the theocratic war strategy. So that that really is the only two topics I have left. I don't know. I don't know. So, yeah. yeah, I think I think I'll probably stick with that, and, and that'll give me some time to to, to yeah, and because and, I do need to talk to you uh, more about the anointed and the great crowd and the distinction between those two. I think that's uh, um, something you need to be aware of the distinction between those two. So I'll need some. I hope I can get some slides together on that between now and Thursday. If not, you'll get the lesson I already have prepared, and then I'll do that one on Friday.